From WDBM, East Lansing. You are listening to The The Undercurrent. Our weekly news and storytelling program. Made by and for the students of Michigan State University. You are listening to The The Undercurrent. Hello, and welcome to The Undercurrent. You're listening to Season 12, Episode 3. I'm your host, Sophie Sagan, and this week, we're headed outside. We present you with stories that take place when we leave our homes and offices. And so, well, at first, I thought the outside seemed like kind of a broad topic for this show. Maybe a little too vague. I wasn't sure if I liked it. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized that there are a couple different types of outside. In the city, for example, in my everyday life, outside means the places between destinations. The time that I spend outside is mostly when I'm in between my apartment and my car or the coffee shop and work. So that's what our first story is about, spending that type of time outside. Reporter Taylor Halterman spent some time with Mirala Samsky at Lansing Street Art Festival below the stacks. While walking the streets of Old Town or under the lights of the Lansing River Trail, it's almost impossible to miss the vibrant murals scattered under bridges and across walls. This week, Lansing's first-ever Below the Stacks Mural Festival will be contributing to the city's ever-growing mural count. The citywide festival brought muralists from across the United States to Lansing to transform some of the blank brick walls into art from the 15th to the 21st of September. Stationed at 1115 South Washington Avenue in Rio Town was an artist born and raised in South Lansing. My name's Samski DeBourbon, and I like to paint funky letters, and weird patterns. (laughs) Samsky also painted the Rio Town sign, welcoming drivers from the corner of East Malcolm X and South Washington Avenue. Where else have I painted? Uh, Throughout Old Town, a lot of random walls. The Rio Town sign up at Malcolm X in Washington. I mean, some of them are like private house commissions. Uh, I've done several bedrooms, the side of the Golden Harvest restaurant, the Harrison Roadhouse pub out in East Lansing. The muralist brought his section of a collaborative wall with another local artist, Spiz, to life with multicolored spray-painted houndstooth that he creates without a stencil and an image of an Oldsmobile Tornado Trofeo, a car with deep lancing roots like Samsky himself, who coincidentally drives the real-life version. Well, I mean, got an Oldsmobile Tornado Trofeo, which was, you know, concepted. I don't know if it was built in Lansing because Flint had an Oldsmobile plant as well. But, yeah, that's my car. It's a 1992. But, yeah, I love Oldsmobiles, and Rio Town was where, you know, the Oldsmobile, like, headquarters was. And, uh, yeah. Samsky was enthusiastic about the festival when he heard of it in the State of the City Address. I'm listening to Andy Shore go on and on about, you know, bringing the arts to the city, and then he's like, we're going to have a street art festival. And I was like, no, you're not. What? (laughs) Since everybody's gotten here and I've met all the artists, everybody's super nice and they're all getting busy. And all the stuff looks super cool. Like, I'm glad it's happening in my hometown because it needed to. Especially after, you know, Jackson has Bright Walls, Battle Creek has Color of the Creek, and Detroit has murals in the market. It's like, what, what's Lansing doing? Samsky originally started his journey in the arts as a classical bass player. On a trip with an international orchestra through Blue Lakes Fine Arts Camp in 2003, he was exposed to graffiti from his tour bus window. 
I studied music performance for a year in college and then went to physics and meteorology. But still, like, in between all my classes, I was, like, painting and drawing and stuff. And I'm like, maybe I should go to art school. It's like, with music, I only could read sheet music and not really improvise. I wasn't in jazz bands or anything like that. I was, you know, straight, like, classical bassist. And with walls, I can improvise. It's like, you know, the jazz to my, you know, classical stuff. Samsky said he has always been numbers and math oriented, and he carries that into his murals. When I'm doing a wall, I'll grid stuff out, like use the bricks as sort of a, you know, system and figure out, you know, numerically, like, okay, is this proportional? Because numbers don't lie. Like, if I can figure out, like, numbers and division and stuff, then I can definitely figure out how to fill up a wall with, you know, weird stuff. All art is, you know, sized. It's a tangible thing in space, so... Along with the numerical factor, Samsky brings fresh perspective to his graffiti and spray paint style. Spray can is a brush, <laughs> you know. That's the one thing. Like, people get really freaked out when somebody's not painting something with a paintbrush, you know. It's like, I like to paint my murals without touching the wall, you know. And I think it's just something people are going to realize and accept, you know. past 10 years has been nuts for the arts because... All these mural festivals have been popping up since, like, what, 2012 or something, and it's been hitting, like, Rust Belt towns in the Midwest. It's, like, all these towns that people didn't even know, street art or graffiti, are now in the know. I mean, I've run into people from all walks of life while painting, you know, between painting under bridges and meeting, you know, your local crackheads that are, you know, freaking out and thinking that what you're doing is cool to, like, somebody in a suit, you know. It's like, for the people who like my stuff, it's, it's diverse. It's cool. It's not just like one certain subculture of people likes my work. It, a lot of people do. I mean, I try to accommodate and cater to the people by doing bright, colorful, fun stuff that I would want to see on a wall. If you've walked around Lansing, chances are you've seen some of Samsky's work somewhere. But if you're interested in seeing more of his art, you can find him at samsky.com at EUFOE on Instagram, as well as at Public Art for Lansing on Facebook. Below the Stacks culminated last night with a celebration featuring live MCs and DJs, as well as a video reveal of all the murals created over the past week. However, if you missed out, you can still check out the murals in person. Their locations are found on the map on belowthestacks.com. For Impact Student Radio, I'm Taylor Holterman. You're listening to The Undercurrent on WDBM East Lansing. This next piece is also brought to you courtesy of Taylor Halterman, and it's about another kind of outside, the environment, the natural world, the place that lays in between cities. This next story is about trying to preserve that natural world and all of the life dependent on it. Here's Taylor. The climate strike was held in Lansing on the steps of the state capitol building September 20th. The point of the event was for citizens' voices to be heard on the topic of climate change. So here's what some of them had to say. I came because our planet is dying, clearly. Um, Science is not a partisan issue, and we need to save our only home that we have for the children of the future. Um, I came today because uh, big CEOs are controlling our politics when it comes to saving the planet, and 
right here in Lansing, we have many politicians that have their all their money going towards fossil fuels and CEOs. So Sunrise and myself organized this climate strike because we're fed up with our um, political and social inaction when it comes to the climate crisis. Everyone says, oh, it's 12 years away, it's eight years away, but we're seeing more and more that it's happening today. The Sunrise Movement is a national coalition of mostly youth um, who are coming together to organize, develop leadership skills, and save our planet. I just don't want to like be that generation that did nothing. That just kind of sat aside and like let the world burn. And now I can't imagine like what it might be like being born into that kind of society where the earth is, you know, basically demolished. There's nothing left. Um, I came out today just to kind of show support. Um, it's actually my first rally ever, and um, I think this is a good one to start. Um, the climate strike is important because we need to shine a spotlight on the reality that our planet is dying and every individual making an effort to cut meat out of their diet, cut dairy, is incredible. But what's even more important is making sure that the 1%, the politicians, the CEOs are making an effort to save the planet and not put money in their pockets. Personally, I believe that climate change, you know, we have to demand it from ourselves, from our society, and then our politicians will start to listen to us. Um, we can pass, or we can try to pass bills, but if the people aren't demanding it, the politicians aren't going to listen. They keep lining their pockets with uh, fossil fuel money and other industries that are anti-future, I guess. Um, we're not going to get anywhere. It's just fact. You can't deny it. It's fact, and it's coming. And if those politicians like were really looking out for best interest, uh, they would be, you know, doing everything they can to prevent this climate crisis from happening. Yeah, look into the zero waste movement. Uh, cut down on beef. I guess take a CSUS class if you go to MSU. Uh, there's so much that you can do personally, uh, but we do have to understand that this is a global issue, and if we want anything to get done, we have to act as a global unit. I think that people should urge their politicians to vote for policies that will save the earth and not save money. Uh, there's a lot of ways to get involved, simply by just eating less meat once a day. Yes! Don't eat meat once a day. Um, you can recycle, you can do a lot of stuff. Turn off lights when you're not using them. It's really that kind of simple stuff that if all of us do it together, then it'll make a big difference. Don't be afraid to make sure that even local politicians are supporting whatever renewable energy is possible. It doesn't just go up to the executive branch. Like It's really important to make sure from the very bottom that everyone is trying to make a change. People can cut meat out of their diets. They can cut dairy out of their diets. They can try to go vegan, but they can if they can't do that for whatever reason, that's okay. They can call their politicians and call for policy that is going to call for renewable energy, for green jobs, and really just making sure that their politicians are supporting the earth and not big companies. You can email your senator and all that is great, but like, um, actions speak a lot louder than words. Don't be afraid to stand up for what you believe in just because it's different than what other people think. For Impact Student Radio, I'm Taylor Holderman.
Up next, we've got more stories brought to you by Michigan State University students. But first, it's time for a weekly impact update. The undercurrent will return in just a moment. But first, your weekly impact update. I'll be your anchor, Ricky Haran. The producer of OxyContin and major player in the opioid crisis, Purdue Pharma, has filed for bankruptcy to settle the many lawsuits it's faced with. According to the New York Times, the settlement is as follows. A payout of $3 billion cash to the plaintiffs of the lawsuits over seven years, the sale of the British drug company Mundi Pharma, and restructuring the company into a new one called Nuco, and having provide drugs to reverse overdoses and treat addiction. However, many states have yet to sign on to the settlement deal. The opponents of the deal are critical of the fact that a lot of the settlement money will be generated from the continuing sale of OxyContin in the U.S. and overseas markets, rather than it all come from the owners of Purdue Pharma themselves. The opposing states believe the Sackler family, heads of the company, will maintain most of their fortune and escape severe consequences from their involvement in the manufacturing of the ongoing opioid crisis. Purdue Pharma's attempts at a bankruptcy settlement and the lawsuits against them at large are still ongoing. That was your national news. Next, we go to reporter Sophie Sagan with your local news. This weekend, Vice President Mike Pence is visiting Mackinac Island for the Mackinac Republican Leadership Conference. He is the first sitting VP to speak at the conference in its 65-year history. Several island locals have objections over another break-in tradition, though, as Pence is expected to travel to the Grand Hotel in an automobile. Most likely, he will be riding in a police department SUV, which is allowed as an exception to the island's motor vehicle ban. A handful of other historical leaders, including Harry Truman, John F. Kennedy, Gerald Ford, George H.W. Bush, and Bill Clinton have also visited the island, although they moved around using the horse and buggy. In the past, Secret Service have required vehicles to be ready in case of an emergency. Pence's team is not commenting on security measures for this trip. For Impact Student News, I'm Sophie Sagan. To close it out, we go to Maddie Farrell with your international news. China, a country with some of the world's strictest gun control policies, is investigating an American FedEx pilot on suspicion of smuggling non-metallic pellet ammunition. The American pilot, identified as Todd A. Han, was detained September 12, 2019, and is not allowed to leave China until the investigation is complete. Han's case is simply the latest contention between China and FedEx. Chinese officials have opened several other investigations into the express service, accusing the company of misrouting packages and potential foul play. Depending on the outcome, FedEx could be placed on a blacklist of unreliable foreign firms. For Impact Student News, I'm Maddie Farrell. This has been your weekly Impact Update. I've been your anchor, Ricky Haran. And now, back to the undercurrent. This next piece is brought to you by the Public Radio Exchange. WTIP recently completed a series about climate change and its impact on North Shore fisheries. Wanted to follow up on that, and today we're going to have a conversation with Dr. Seth Moore. He's the Director of Wildlife and Biology at the Grand Portage Band of Lake Superior Chippewa. Seth, thanks for stopping by talking some fish today. Yeah, good to be here, Joe. So, as I said, we recently completed this uh, series and it was, uh, you know, in partnership with the DNR largely, but some other agencies here in Minnesota. And one thing that uh, I wanted to talk with you about is this idea of subsistence fish species. And I know this is something that's uh, a topic that you work with very closely in Grand Portage. And, you know, when I talk about 
the DNR stocking lakes and even with uh, fisheries managers, either uh, Steve Persons or, or Dean over in Finland, whoever it might be, Corey Goldsworthy down, down the shore, uh, we're talking largely about recreational aspects of fishing and, you know, anglers and their pursuit of fish. But in Grand Portage, we're actually, uh, you know, you work and, and think largely in the context of subsistence fish and species uh, in, in that context. Can you explain that a little bit for our listener? And then uh, we've got some anecdotal topics that relate directly to this. But first, tell us a little bit about subsistence fish species. Absolutely. So so my job working for the Grand Portage Band of Chippewa is really to focus my energy and time and research on subsistence species used by the Grand Portage Band with the goal of trying to manage these species such that they exist into perpetuity. And to do that, we actually use what's called seventh generation planning, using the idea that each person's life touches seven generations, from a great-grandparent to a great-grandchild. And we try to work in a manner such that people seven generations from now will be able to live as we do now, or historically as they were done seven generations ago. So so my job working on, on subsistence species is to help to make sure that there are fish that can be hunted, fished, and gathered for subsistence purposes, and that's where I focus my research. So many of the species I work on are historic subsistence species used by the Grand Portage Band. I work on lake trout. I work on brook trout, um, walleye, lake cisco, sturgeon. Uh, these are all historic and native species. All right. So let's talk then about, you know, part of what came up in our series that I explored, uh, one on inland lakes, one on uh, river streams, and then Lake Superior itself. You know, we heard a lot about trout. That's a species that seems to be at most risk when we're talking about climate change and warming temperature in the water. Seth, you've actually done some research uh, and, and changed some of uh, your, your stocking of, of lakes, of a lake in particular uh, in Grand Portage. Tell me a little bit about this and, and where that fits into the context of subsistence fish species. Sure. I'll actually start a little bit earlier than that. Uh, we were uh, the second tribe in the United States to actually put together a climate change adaptation plan. And what the process was, was we identified what things in Grand Portage would be vulnerable to climate change. It's called a vulnerability assessment. And then we developed a strategic plan to adapt to climate change such that we can try to mitigate some of those vulnerabilities as climate change is occurring. And in that, we looked at fisheries very closely. And we're also one of the one of the first tribes, or probably the first tribe in the nation, to actually deliberately change a fish assemblage because of the risk of climate change. So I'll, I'll sort of tell the story about that um, today. But essentially, we have a lake on the reservation called Trout Lake. Historically, it was a brook trout lake of, of native brook trout, and it was fished for subsistence and recreational purposes. When When I got here in 2005 we had been observing that surface water temperatures in the lake were getting quite warm as a consequence of warm summers. And they were actually reaching the point that they uh, exceeded the lethal thermal limit for brook trout, which is the point at which brook trout die because the water is too warm. So we did a lot of work um, looking at the population structure in the lake, looking at water temperatures, and actually modeling how much of the lake volume was exceeding this lethal limit for brook trout. And we came to the conclusion after several years of work that despite aggressive stocking efforts and, you know, trying to manage the fishery for brook trout, 
this was not going to succeed. So we had to do something about it. We have three fishable lakes on the reservation, and my job is to make sure that they maintain that status of being fishable. So I was left with some alternatives, which would be a lake with no fish or changing a management regime deliberately to be able to adapt to this impact of climate change. And so that's what we chose to do. We looked at the lake temperatures and the volumes and considered other native species that might be more suitable given the fact that the climate has been impacting this trout lake or what was historically a trout lake. And so in 2004, we stocked yellow perch um, as a forage base for, for a larger predatory fish to eat. And then in 2006, we began stocking walleye in the lake. And both of those have become relatively successful. Uh, yellow perch are um, self-sustaining now and a very active fishery for them. And the walleye population, we continue to stock supplementally till we can get sufficient numbers in there that they have sort of a, a critical spawning mass and can reproduce successfully. Okay, wow. So you've essentially then uh, taken the management of the lake from a managed trout lake and shifted it to perch and walleye. What's been the reaction from the Grand Portage community? Because, you know, brook trout are a coveted, uh, treasured species here in, in northern Minnesota, and uh, they're great for, you know, ice angling opportunities and so forth. But uh, so what's been the reaction uh, from the community? Well, I think it's been relatively positive. It's certainly the most actively fished lake on the reservation. And, you know, given the alternative of not having a fishery in the lake at all, um, we did what we had to do. And I, and to be, to be honest, I really see this is going to be the direction that fisheries managers do in much broader regions like northern Minnesota and Ontario. As these smaller trout-specific lakes get too warm, they're going to be faced with a very difficult decision. You know, do we change this fish assemblage? Or do we allow this lake to become fishless? And uh, I have a feeling public pressure is going to push DNRs to adapt in the same way that we did. Yeah, because it's expensive to stock yearling rainbow trout, uh, you know, fingerling brook trout, brown trout, whatever the species may be, splake and so forth. So uh, that if you're continuing to invest money and then the fish don't get, uh, you know, for again now, talking more recreational aspect when we're talking about the DNR, if they're not surviving, they they die in there. Nobody's winning yep. on that front, uh, certainly not the DNR or the anglers. So the yep. idea that these might have to change is something that could be happening on, on a broader spectrum. And, and the, the fish then, the, the walleye and the perch are, are doing well in the lake? Is that accurate? Yeah, they are. They're, they're doing well, and we've actually projected forward and it looks like under current warming scenarios, uh, walleye and yellow perch will be viable for, you know, decades to come. And so that's the type of science I'd like to do is figure out what the issues are and then systematically address them such that they'll work for a long time into the future. But, you know, your point on um, repeat stocking events not necessarily working well is, is valid. And that's exactly what agencies like mine are going to face is. If we stock fish in the summer at a large size, first of all, it's expensive to grow them to a large size. Then if they're going to die because of summer temperatures, it's really not that great of an idea to do it. Yeah, okay. Well, interesting. I know in my conversations with uh, the DNR that they definitely referenced uh, the Grand Portage Band as being very much in front of the idea of, of climate change and, and planning, managing around that concept and that was also something that came up Seth in our series that we recently completed the idea of the the political nature of climate change is not something that that just even factors into wildlife management at this 
stage here in 2019. Yeah, that's exactly right. Okay, well, interesting. We'll see if the DNR uh, follows suit with some of this, uh, changing a trout lake to more of a warm water species uh, that could sustain here in the future. Those would be uh, changing it from brook trout to walleye and perch. We'll see if any of those lakes, uh, maybe up the Gunflint Trail, some other areas uh, change here in the coming decades. Uh, We've been speaking with Dr. Seth Moore. He's the Director of Wildlife and Biology for the Grand Portage Band of Lake Superior Chippewa. Seth, thank you so much. Thanks so much, Joe. Good to be here. And we're back to original content made by Michigan State University students. As I'm sitting here recording, it is the 21st of September, 2019. The first official air date for this undercurrent episode will be September 22nd. But just in case you missed it, reporter Nick Sabo brings you this creative piece to honor the 21st of September and to wrap up the show. Hello, my name is Nick Sabo on Impact 89FM. This is a very special weekend that I wait for every single year. This is the 41st September 21st since September by Earth, Wind, and Fire first came out in 1978. For those of you who don't know, the song is all about remembering the lovely day of September 21st, and I thought of no better way to honor the song than to go around campus and ask all of you to help me recreate the music. I ended up with a result that makes sure you always remember. was changing the minds of pretenders while chasing the clouds away our hearts were ringing in the key that our souls were singing as we danced in the night remember how the stars stole the night away Say, do you remember, buddy? Dancing in September, buddy. Never was a cloudy day. Ba do da ba do da ba do da ba do 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 ba do da. My thoughts are with you. Holding hands with your heart to see you. Only blue talk and love. Remember how we knew love was here to stay. Now December found the love that we shared in September. Only blue talk and love. Remember the true love we share today. Badia, do you remember Badia? Dancing in September, Badia, never was a cloudy day. Badia, say, do you remember Badia? Dancing in September, Badia, colder dreams were shiny days. The bell was ringing, our souls were singing, 
do remember never a cloudy day. Badia, saying, do you remember? Badia, dancing in September. Badia, never was a cloudy day. Badia, say, do you remember? Badia, dancing in September. Badia, golden were shiny days. Badia, dia, dio. Badia, dia, dio. Badia, dia, dia, dia. Yeah, next time remind me to only interview the Michigan State Choir. Thanks for listening. I'm Nick Sabo on WDBM 89.9 FM. And that's it for our show. Thank you to our general manager, Jeremy Whiting, our station manager, Olivia Mitchell, and our programming director, Amber Kanuski. And thank you to you, the listener. We'll see you back here next week for another episode of The Undercurrent.